Hi there, welcome to the Truly Myrtle podcast. I'm Libby and this is episode 13. Thank you for joining me here today. It's not going to be a regular podcast episode today. I'm really excited to be bringing you a special episode. Today, I'm bringing you the first interview in my new series that I'm dubbing Our Wardrobe Stories. I'm going to be dropping in an interview from the series here and there from now on, and I can't wait to share them with you. I really hope you enjoy them as much as I've been enjoying making them. I grew up in many handmade clothes, and I've been making clothes for myself since I was a teenager. I've been really thrilled and intrigued this past year by the number of people sharing stories of their own handmade wardrobes. It's been fascinating to hear about their adventures, their mistakes, lessons they've learnt, and their reasons for making their own clothes. And it's really made me stop and think more about why I'm making my clothes, what I'm making them with, and how and when I'm getting them made. It's also made me realise how powerful the story of a handmade wardrobe can be. I really believe that creating the garments we wear can be truly empowering and hugely satisfying. And of course we make mistakes, everyone makes mistakes, but overall we learn heaps and I just think it makes us feel good. And I got really nosy. What drives other people to make their own clothes? What motivates them? I'm really curious to hear about the fabrics people choose, the yarn they knit with, how they learnt to knit and sew, and what their favourite things are to make. Our wardrobe stories will be a wandering collection of interviews with people around me. I figure I'm probably surrounded by interesting makers here in New Zealand. New Zealanders like to think of themselves as innovators. I think it probably stems back to our fairly recent pioneering ancestors. So I've decided to start by looking right under my nose for wardrobe stories and what better place to start than where it all began for me, my own family. My mum Jude grew up in New Zealand in the 1950s and as you will hear, she grew up with a simple life in handmade clothes, eating homegrown food. But the way she grew up wasn't a lifestyle choice. It was just a way of life. And you'll hear that nearly everyone around her lived this life too. It's made me really think about how life has changed. My mum is a good storyteller and I grew up listening to stories of her childhood and her adventures and I loved them. I used to prop myself up in her bed in the morning on the weekends and ask her to tell me that story again about something. Tell me that story again about something else. And I had my favourites and I'd ask for them. And my own kids are doing that now too. They love hearing my mum's stories. But what's funny about her stories is that many of them include handmade clothes. Stories like being at the summer fair in her sundress with its matching bolero top and bloomers. The story of her winter coat that caught the wind when she ran through the thicket so that she almost flew. And the story of when she met my dad and the dress she'd made and she can describe the dress and how he said his name was Sam and no one was called Sam in the early 60s in New Zealand and so she told him her name was Bridget Bardot. My mum's stories always have a reference back to clothes. My own childhood is similar. When I think back, I remember parties and that sundress 
and receiving awards at school and that dress my mum had finished the night before and dressing the same as my baby brother in matching outfits. They're just stories of clothes littered all the way through my childhood. You know, I think handmade clothes are special. They're full of memories. I think they add a richness to our stories and I think that stays with us forever. Anyway, let's hear from my mum and her own wardrobe story. Here's Jude. I was a child of the 50s, early 50s, born in 46. So I was four in 1950. And I suppose my first memories begin around about then, four, five, six, don't remember much before that. Um, and I grew up in a street across the road from the sea a two-story house that shook in the wind and a street full of kids, all post-war babies. So there was a family next door with five boys and then the reeds a little bit further down with six and and the one kid in the street who was qu- quite odd was Colleen Boyle, who was one. There was only one. Who, that was really unusual. The Macmillans, two. That was quite unusual. Anyway. So there were heaps of kids in the street and um, we all went to different churches. So that we went to the Anglican Church and the the Callanans went to the Catholic Church and the Reeds went to the Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian Church. <laughs> I don't know where Colleen went, but I think it might have been the Baptist Church. <laughs> so on Sunday we all walked to church and it was like a parade of royal children. We all looked like we'd come from the royal family because that was how our parents dressed us in Wellington in the early 50s, as if we were little royal children. <laughs> <laughs> so we had highly polished T-bar leather shoes, little socks. Um, we all wore coats in the winter made from our father's overcoats and so some were gabardine, I had a beautiful tweedy one with brown velvet collar and a little Dutch bonnet with brown velvet in the bonnet and I had covered buttons. I think they were, I don't know what they were, whether they were the cork buttons or leather buttons or anyway I had covered buttons and my brother had a little tweed jacket and matching tweed pants which probably cut down from dad, a suit. Um, my sister too. And the reeds were all dressed the same in their little in their little royal outfits. And we all went to church. It was quite a long walk. I don't think we ever went in the car. It would have taken us half an hour to an hour, I guess, to walk to church. So that that was the that was the fashion for the children. We were little royal children. And I think our mothers were probably cardboard cutouts of, of the princesses. So they wore pearls and cardigans and twin sets and tartan skirts and <laughs> Coats, always hats, always hats, and gloves, always gloves, and handbags hooked over the arm, you know, and high heel shoes. Now, we didn't get a car till I was about nine, so mum must have walked to church in that. Never thought about it before. Hmm. Dad only went occasionally. When there was a family service, he would go, but it wasn't often. So who made all these clothes? Our mothers made all our clothes. Um, all the mothers sewed. They sewed everything we wore, right down to our knickers with pockets in them. And, knit- and knitted? And knitted. They knitted everything too. 
I did, we never bought anything in the shop that I can recall. Um, they even made our togs. Oh my goodness. Yes, yes. Initially, I had knitted togs, which were dreadful because when they got wet, they filled with water and got very heavy. Oh. Uh, they were they were tied behind our necks and so not not comfortable when they got wet. <laughs> you end up with chafing around your neck. And the men, of course, all had to wear belts to keep theirs up. Oh, no. uh, I've got some photos there somewhere. And um, after that, they made our togs out of cottons and poplins. Well, after Was the first one's wool? Yes, yes. I remember probably I was about at school age. By the time I was at school, we were getting togs made um, out of cotton. And they used to use shirring elastic. And they'd just shir around from under your arms, the full length of your body. It would all just be shirred elasticised they weren't great either <laughs> they also managed to hold quite a lot of water but the, uh, my first proper pair of togs I was probably about 10 I think what proper bought pair a stretchy a stretchy, oh, stretchy yeah sort of you know mm. so did they so that would have been relatively new fabric it must have been yeah I had a pair of uh, I used to swim so I had racing togs they were b- dark black stretchy things oh. so hmm hmm so where did your mum get all her fabric from? Oh, um, she used to go into Wellington to get the fabric. She'd go in for the sales twice a year, sometimes once a year. I don't, I don't remember if it was once or twice. She'd go in on the tram and come back with fabric, which she'd spread out on the bed. We didn't call it fabric, we called it material. She brought all the material home and we put it on the bed. And then she'd say, this is for you and this is for, your, for Chrissy and this is for me. And this is for you and Chrissy, and this is for her mother and daughter dresses, <laughs> which we loved. <laughs> and the patterns were invariably the same. They were um, very full gathered skirts with a big bow at the back, some round-necked, some v-necked, pretty much, pretty much the same style. And I think they probably shared patterns because the red girls wore the same clothes that we did. Mum had a treadle sewing machine, a singer treadle sewing machine. Uh, I don't ever remember seeing her sew. Don't even know where she kept it. Isn't that odd? No. This is in Island Bay in Wellington. I left there when I was nine. And then when we moved to Whanganui, I know where the machine went because she'd had a motor put on it. I should probably tell you that when, when we went to in Island Bay in Wellington, it was after the war, so nobody had much money, we had... A school uniform, which was bought, wasn't made. It was a serge, navy blue wool, serge, pleated, box pleated uniform that we wore with a little white shirt under it, a hand-knitted red cardigan, and and a little mum used to make little red bows on gold safety pins that she'd put at my neck. I don't think everybody had to wear those, but we did. And brown shoes and socks. Didn't tend to wear black shoes. We had, we had to change out of that immediately we got through the door into our home clothes, which were in the summer, I had a pair of red and white striped sh- shorts and a little white shirt with no sleeves and a collar. And I, no t-shirts in those days? No, no cotton knit, nothing like that. Um, and no skirts either. No, dresses, always dresses, dresses or shorts. And I had dresses. We, I used to get hand-me-downs from some of my cousins and they'd come in bags. And they, they were often after school clothes. So did everyone else's mother sew too? Yeah. 
Yeah, as far as I know. I, I seem to remember that up the hill there was a girl called Diane Kalis and she had bought dresses. And I didn't even know where you bought dresses. She didn't come from Wellington. She'd come from somewhere else. I suppose in my mind I thought it was America. <laughs> I don't know. Because everything slightly exotic came from America. <laughs> you know, all the movies did. <laughs> so... I think she probably didn't come from America. She probably came from Auckland. <laughs> but she she had bought dresses. I felt a bit sorry for her, actually, that she had to wear bought dresses. I never aspired to a bought dress. I didn't want one. I sort of felt that you could choose what you had if you... I mean, I didn't choose, but I obviously had the feeling that I did. Mm. So I mean, it was a real thing to have a bought dress. Um, but I didn't know where you bought them. I don't remember ever seeing them in shops or anything. Mm. But it wasn't common. Oh, no, no. And you talked about your brother's coat and shorts being made from mm. Umpar's old mm. suits. So mm. was that common to use? Oh, yes. Nothing was wasted. Nothing was wasted. Um, my father used to have these big tweed wool coats, and they were always unpicked and made into shorts for my brother and little sports jackets for my brother and um, coats for Chrissy and I for church and anything left over. Um, stockings, clothes, woolen jerseys, anything left over. We put in sacks, and when we went through to see Nan and Pahiatua, we'd take them to Nan because she'd turn them into her wool, into her rag rugs. So nothing was ever wasted. Mm. Um, no, but we only ever had wool. I don't remember linen as a fabric. We had wool, cotton, polished cotton, organza, taffeta, yes, um, voile. I remember lots of different sorts of fabric. Mm. I remember my cousin, who lived with us, was presented, goodness knows where, and my mother and she chose this fabric that was sort of turquoise taffeta. And mum made her this dress, real 1950s, sleeveless, sort of high collar. There must have been little pearl buttons or something down the front, waist, full skirt. And it was, what was it called? It was called water taffeta it had a sort of a water pattern on it and it was the most disastrous mistake because it smelt of fish and we couldn't oh. get the fish smell out of it it must have had something to do with the dye they hung it outside in the shed they hung it outside on the clothesline I don't know whether they ever succeeded in getting rid of this fishy smell did she wear it I, she did but they oh. but they must have either swathed through in perfume or oh, oh dear yes and that's where I got my first fabric from, the leftovers, um, from the little bits that were left. Mum used to save all the leftovers. She'd put them all in little rolls and then roll them all up and tie them and just store them. But there were always bits that were just too short or too small and those bits she'd give to me. Mm -hmm. And that's what I used to make dolls' clothes and things mm -hmm. with. Yeah. So everybody sewed and presumably knitted. Yes, Mum wasn't a great knitter. She knitted just... But she liked very fine wool, so she would knit booties and bonnets and little those lovely little jackets um, for new babies, and that was her standard congratulations gift. Our, our knitting was mostly done by um, Auntie Anne, who was Dad's old landlady when he was at university, or maybe when he was working, I don't know, he had a couple of landladies. But Auntie Anne lived in Wellington. I, I suppose mum bought the wool and gave it to her and 
So our school cardigans came from Auntie Anne, our twin sets came from Auntie Anne, Mum's wool dresses, and she had several of those, they all came from Auntie Anne. Um, Do you think she paid Auntie Anne? I don't know. I very much doubt it. Mm. I doubt it. I had several holidays with Auntie Anne when we moved away from Wellington. She was more like an aunt than a... She was a lovely old lady. Long grey hair, plaited around her head. So everybody made things, everyone knitted and everybody sewed. Why? It Probably because it had always been done, I think. I think when you look back at that cutting of Grandma's wedding in Pahiatua, um, I think they would have had a dressmaker and I distinctly remember Grandma telling me that when she rode the hunt and wanted to ride astride like her brothers, she got the dressmaker to make her skirt split. Now she never told me she'd made it, she said she got the dressmaker to do it and it was a surprise to everybody when she, when she got it and wore it and rode her horse astride. So they had someone make their clothes? I think so. I think so. And I know that Grandma sewed. Now that's interesting because she used to sew for my mother. Um, she made dresses for my mother, so she must have sewed as well. And the other thing too was when my mother got her doll, remember that doll? Mm. Peggy. Mum, they in Pahiatua, my mother went to Pahiatua after the Napier earthquake in 32 and lived at Rillstar with, with great-grandma. She, when she got the doll, it just had a shift, a, um, a cotton shift, like a, a petticoat. And her uncle Eric, who was the youngest of all the Mexted boys, apparently went into Pahiatua and bought organza and fabric and made her first outfit. She made? No, she oh. didn't. Eric made it. Oh. Yeah. So men and women? Well, I don't know whether it was men generally, but Eric certainly made the bonnet, everything. He made it for Peggy. Did he make that black shawl I have in the cupboard? He probably did. The painted one. Yes. Yeah, I would think that's Eric too. In ah. fact, now you're ringing bells, I'm pretty sure it was Eric. Ah. Yeah, because Grandma was a painter. A she was. So they were slightly unusual in that they had a dressmaker, presumably had some of their own skills too, yes. artistic maybe. Yeah. But once you were a little bit older, your mother clearly didn't have a dressmaker. No, no, she didn't have a dressmaker. She made all her own clothes and hats, felt hats and straw hats. and Yeah. So why do you think she made things? Was it because it was post-war? Oh, I think so. I don't think they had much money after the war. I can remember my father standing up, tacking up the roof, the scrim roof in the kitchen with tacks, and mum saying, it'll just blow down again, and dad will say, this will hold it for the time being. <laughs> so I think there wasn't a lot of money. And the fact that, the, no, I'm sure there wasn't. I mean, we didn't have a car, for goodness sake. We didn't get a car till I was nine, and dad built the garage himself. Um, and he grew all our own vegetables. We had a huge vegetable garden. I don't ever remember buying vegetables. He pl he grew everything we ate. The strawberries, potatoes, everything. In Island Bay in Wellington. Um, and we sh and neighbours gave one another vegetables too. We, Yeah, I think that's how they lived. So everybody lived a bit like oh, that. Oh, they did. The Reeds had a huge vegetable garden. Mrs Reed used to make bread. Mum didn't make bread, but she did. Um, yeah, I think people lived like that after the war. I think money was short. 
And Dad, of course, fished. We had a fishing boat, uh, you know, a rowboat that he would take out into the harbour. And so at least three meals a week were fish in our family. And he set crayfish pots. We had crayfish. We used to get bored with crayfish. <laughs> we only liked the legs. <laughs> so, and butterfish we loved. Um, but we lived on fish. And um, I know we gave fish to the neighbours. Yeah, it was pretty... Mm. Mm, well, that was probably economical. And when did you learn? Well, um, I learned in Napier. That's when I learned to sew using the machine, and that was when Mum had already had the electric motor put onto the machine, so you just had to push the treadle down. And the very first thing I sewed with the machine, I think I probably sewed a few straight lines. She she got me to thread it up and sew a few straight lines first. But the first garment I sewed was my school uniform for third form. And um, it was cotton, green cotton gingham, and it was a shirt top with buttons down the front and a collar and sleeves and a little pocket above the breast and um, a gourd skirt, four gore, I think it was a four gore. And we had the belt made in Napier in town. We took the belt in and they made the belt, put the studs in and put the buckle on. I also had to make, at the same time, I made two uniforms and I had to make... Oh, bloomers God. that we did PE in these ridiculous bloomers <laughs> with a sort of a V front and then they gathered off the v. they were really tricky gathered off the V oh they were hideous great balloony things <laughs> and we what the heck did we wear with the top I think we bought a shirt I think we bought a white shirt I don't ever remember making it so I think I had to wear a white shirt and these horrible bloomers for PE uh, for sports and then winter we just had the box pleat uniform and a bought shirt and it was a bought shirt because it had a stiff like a man's collar that we wore with a tie and a blazer. And did most people make their own uniforms? Quite a lot of the girls at school had made their own uniforms. Yeah they did. Mm. Yes we never really thought, I never thought to ask anybody. I never thought to ask anybody but I just, I just knew that they had, quite a few had. Some definitely hadn't. I can think of someone immediately who didn't. And someone whose aunts had made hers. But no, they, they were all made. You couldn't go and buy a uniform, so somebody had to make them. Right. They weren't for sale, those summer uniforms, as far as I know. You had to. You were told where to buy the fabric, and the, the pattern was you were told where to get the pattern. You had to make them. Hmm. So when did you do the, your... Because you went on to do a lot of sewing. Oh, I sewed... I sewed it was about that time that I decided that I wanted to choose my own fabric. Mum still bought fabric for us, and um, I didn't really want any more mother and daughter dresses after that. And I didn't particularly want to be dressed like my sister either after that. <laughs> Up until then, I'd really enjoyed it, but I think to 11, 12, you didn't. Yeah, I, I got a holiday job in the hospital, washing pots. And with the money that I earned from my hospital job, um, I bought fabric and by that stage what was driving the fashion was definitely America. There was a magazine that was called Seventeen that we loved. We couldn't get a lot of the stuff that was in Seventeen. They used to wear these little shoes, these beige and white sort of sneakery type shoes. We couldn't get those. Oh, that was sad. <laughs> but we had sort of slip-on-y type shoes 
and um, the, which they wore too. And the skirts, and the, they had lots of plaid, lots of tartan. We couldn't get tartan. Cotton was nowhere around. And, and quite a lot of the stuff in 17 was tartan. So that was a bit difficult too. But there were some things that we could copy, and we did. We did, yeah. We used to, the long shorts. We wore long shorts one year. Bermuda shorts, we called them. Yes, we were very influenced by America then. And because our movies mostly came from America. Some from England. Um, but the ones that influenced us were America. And Elvis Presley was definitely in fashion then too. So all the girls would spin and do jive and wear lots of petticoats. And we used to starch our petticoats so that they would stand up on their own. I can remember hanging them upside down on the clothesline. And then when you take them down, they'd just stand on the floor like a tent. <laughs> and they'd prickle too when you wore them. You'd end up with scratched legs. And you'd make those? Yes, we did. I had a broidron glaze one, and I had a bought one. I had a, a nylon one that I used to starch with gelatine. And I used to wear the broidron glaze one on top because it was pretty, and the nylon one underneath because it wasn't so pretty. Oh, so layers of them. Mm, mm. I think we started doing that in about... Oh, when I was about form two, I think we'd started to wear those full skirts. Yeah. But anyway, so Elvis Presley was a big influence. So were your friends also making things to follow these fashions? Yes, they were. Yeah, they were. Um, yes, I can't think of anyone who didn't. I suppose people bought clothes there, but I don't know where they bought them. I don't remember clothes shops. They must so have So when been you there. say you bought things, did someone make them for you? Or No, we made them all ourselves. I think some people had clothes made that were dressmakers but um, mostly we would go to fabric shops and buy fabric there were lots of fabric shops and wool shops what about patterns where did you find patterns? yeah same place wool shops fabric shops that's where the patterns were so you yeah. didn't tend to make up your own patterns no patterns. no 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 we sometimes adapt them mm. I got very good at adapting patterns because I'm so broad-shouldered and always had a, a bigger bust than everybody else and I've got a sort of a boyish figure I never had much of a waist but I had no bottom and no hips so I got very good at adapting patterns making the waists a bit longer giving myself a little bit of extra around the armholes and in the bust and so I never even thought just to cut out a pattern when it came the first thing I'd do would be to butcher it and change it so it would fit me mm. I added sometimes a bit more on, depending on the pattern I'd add a bit more on the shoulders it was hit and miss I mean I got very good at it but it um yeah you just figured this out yourself. I worked it out, yes. Yeah, I don't remember anyone showing me. Mum may have shown me, I don't remember. Mm. But um, I often used to get a pattern slice smaller than I was It because it fitted me better everywhere else and then just make it bigger in the shoulders and the bust. That was better than buying a big pattern because everything else was too big. Mm. Yeah, and I never had a great deal of success making trousers because they all had waists and hips and I never did have either of those. And what about knitting? Did you do any knitting for yourself during this time? Um, I did. I, I first My first bit of knitting was in Whanganui when I was about 10. And mum took me off. I She taught me to knit. And she took me off to a shop and let me choose whichever colour I wanted. And there was just a wall of wool. And I chose this fire engine red wool. I, we didn't buy a pattern. My mother had a pattern. And I said it wasn't quite what I wanted. I wanted a polar neck. Mum said we could make a polar neck. That wouldn't be a problem. And um, we bought the wool and we bought it on lay-by. So we didn't take it all away at once. We just took a bit away. 
and then we'd, I'd go back a few weeks later and get another couple of balls. It was in skeins, it wasn't in balls. And then you'd have to hold your fingers out and wind it up into a ball. And was it All the wool was in skeins. And it was wool? It was wool. And was it from New Zealand? I think so. I don't think it was ever imported. We didn't have a lot of imported stuff in the 50s. Um, I think that's why we had to make do. We didn't import anything that I remember. If it was imported, it was a big deal. I mean, I remember getting some toys once that a friend of my father's brought back from Japan or somewhere. And we said that they're from overseas. <laughs> These toys are from overseas. And there was a monkey that clapped its hands and an elephant or something that walked when he wound it up. But no, everything was made here. Yeah. And I know that you talk about making things when you were at Teachers Training College. Oh, yes, yes. Well, Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I knitted. That's why I did quite a good knitting. I started knitting a lot more there than I ever did. At, I don't remember knitting at high school. don't think I did. But at Teachers College, I bought wool and papakura, and um, I wanted baggy jerseys. That was the thing then. They were called Sloppy Joes, 63. And these Sloppy Joes, this was another American thing, I couldn't find a pattern for a Sloppy Joe. So I decided that I would, just by double knitting, I bought some brown double knitting, lovely rich brown, and I had a just a regular jersey pattern, and I decided that I would knit it in bigger needles, much bigger needles, and um, see if I could make a Sloppy Joe, and I did. And so I bought some more too. I had a, I did a brown one and I did a mustardy coloured one. Yeah. And then I did a green one in Fishman's Rib. Which um, actually Sam turned up one night to pick me up to take me to the movies and he was wearing my jersey. <laughs> How did you get that? Because I'd loaned it to someone who'd loaned it to someone who'd loaned it to someone and there he was in the doorway with my jersey on. So that, we used to share clothes a bit, but um, I, he didn't know it was my jersey either. But anyway, no, we shared clothes there. But so, the ball, that was interesting because we all went into Auckland to buy our fabric. I'd, I wanted to wear something that nobody else would wear, but I did want to be, didn't want to be the same. And everyone else was wearing pink and blue and uh, not lemon, mostly pinks and blues. So I bought brown. <laughs> I brought <laughs> Put brown brocade with black roses on it, raised. It was really nice, actually. Nobody else had a brown dress. I felt sure that that <laughs> would be the only brown dress there. And I think I was. And I made a, I, I had a pattern that I wanted. By this stage, I'd realised that dual patterns were nice. Don't ask me when I realised that. But I discovered that dual patterns were a little bit more interesting. So I made a... um. And I just remember that Jenny Coppins taught me to make that dual rose. She sewed everything she wore. She was a fantastic sewer. She She, was your very close friend. Yeah, she was my dear friend. And she and I shared a room when I was at college. She was just such a talented girl. Really such a talented girl. She was an artist and a sewer. She didn't knit, I don't think, but she certainly played guitar and painted. Anyway, I think she taught me to make the dual rose. She would have worn blue or pink or something. <laughs> she wouldn't have gone. <laughs> she was a very pretty girl and she, yes, she wouldn't have worn brown. But anyway, I went down to the sewing room at college with Jen to make our dresses and every machine was used. Every machine was girl was full with girls making their dresses for the ball. And we'd, we'd go up and down, we'd go back to our room, have a cigarette, cup of coffee, and someone would belt down to see if we could 
find an empty machine and it was really hard in the end I remember sewing one 11 at night I think I finished sewing it because I just couldn't get a machine to sew my dress so I have to assume from that that probably 90% of the girls made their own dresses for the ball and that was 63 so we were all still sewing in 63 some of them were long mine were short <laughs> because I wasn't going to wear a long one. So that was 1963 in New mm. Zealand and everyone was mm. still sewing. Yes. And yeah. I know that not long after that you left and went to England. I did, yeah. With I your did. family. So what mm. was it like in England in 1964? Oh, that was a real culture shock. Yeah, 64. 60, we left in 63. You went with your whole family? Yes, we did. Yeah, and we went by sea, so it was we went on the Orsova, so it was quite a long, about six, seven weeks it took us to get there. And that was a real eye opener. We'd never, I'd never been out of New Zealand before. Dad had been away for six years during the, but we hadn't. None of us ever had. So that was a real eye opener. And when we went through Bombay, the one thing my father desperately wanted to do was buy Mum and I a piece of silk each. And uh, so we found the markets and found loads and loads of of shops selling silk. And a little man came up and pointed to Dad's rotary badge and pointed to his rotary badge. And Dad, he had a bit of English, and my father managed to explain to him what we were looking for, and he took us to this shop, silk shop. And then Dad said to us we could choose whatever we wanted. So I I chose some dark forest green silk, a lot of it, masses of it. I must have got about, mm, about six yards of it, I guess. And, oh, maybe even more than that. He bought a lot. And Mum chose green too, with black, the black wheels on it, which I've I made got, into a dress for her, which you, you've got, got now. I've got that dress. Yes. Da- he was a bit disappointed we'd both chosen green. He wanted Mum to choose something pink, actually, the truth's to be told. <laughs> he wanted Mum in pink. So Mum chose a bit of pink as well. Yeah, and then later on in England, when we, when we arrived in England, what was it like in England? Were oh, people making freezing, their own clothes? Freezing or? cold. Freezing cold. <laughs> I'd never been so cold. Cold right through to my bones. Oh, gosh. That was when I became aware that you could buy clothes in shops. John Lewis and Liberties. Mind you, the Liberties fabrics were beautiful and I bought some. So yes, I became aware that you could buy clothes. But I, again, I'm tall. I was five, nearly five nine, which was tall in England in those days. I mean, I could look over people's heads in the tube. I can't now. I mean, they're taller than me now. But then I was really tall, and in high heel shoes, I was probably pushing six feet tall. And I had um, broad shoulders because I'd been a swimmer and a bust. Um, I was slim. I wasn't. I wasn't overweight, but I was totally different build from the English girls who tended to be shorter and busty, but short and... Curvaceous. Curvaceous, yes, they were. and Or else they were skinny, like little sticks. Like twiggy. Yeah, like twiggy, it. exactly. Um, and and I couldn't find clothes to fit me. Um, I tried, and really, in desperation, I just couldn't find anything. So I made clothes again. Um, I found a shop, a Swedish shop that sold the most beautiful Swedish cottons and I'd go, I bought quite a few bits of fabric from there. There were plenty of fabric shops but the fabrics weren't always wool, cotton, linen. They were, it was the first time I'd really struck acrylics I think. Mm. I didn't like the feel of them and I didn't like the, they didn't smell, I just didn't like them. Yeah so Liberties were, were because they had that lovely Liberty lawn 
And they also, my Liberty dress that I wore the night I got engaged, that's a Liberty print, with a round neck with a little scalloped collar, no sleeves, mini, tight. Um, that's black with a little flower, so that's cotton, it's a sort of thicker cotton. Uh, warm, warmish sort of cotton, must be brushed in mm. some way. Hmm. So I bought a few Liberties, but they were expensive and I was on a budget. I, I found a shop called the Tall Girl Shop in Hanover Square. I could find clothes in there, but they were so expensive. I bought a trouser suit, but and a coats. We used to buy coats. I had several coats that I bought in England. Couldn't survive without a coat. Yeah, but the but the dress that I made, that probably the most memorable dress, or one of the most memorable dresses, was the one that I made when we were as a family were invited to um, a ball at Buckingham Palace, and I was included on the invitation because I was eighteen. And, oh, we weren't invited. We were actually commanded. <laughs> you don't get in. The, attached to the invitation, well, the summons, was a, um, a list of things that you could and couldn't wear. And it said that we, had to, we weren't allowed to wear black, and we weren't allowed to wear purple, and we had to have our arms covered, either by gloves that went above our elbows or long sleeves. I think that was all, really. So it didn't even cross my mind. I made up my green silk into a dress and I um, and I had a big scoop round neck um, and a seam that went just below the bust, not underneath but just on it and then um, a tight underskirt that went right to the ground. I think there was probably a split up the back but I don't remember. And then there was a, a lined overskirt that went over the top that fell away in a V in the front and I had a Dior rose in the front. And I had, I went shopping and at Swan and Edgar I bought some doe skin because it's cheaper than kid. <laughs> I bought some doe skin gloves that went up to above my elbows, which I've still got actually. And then I had to make my mother's dress. So I made my mother just a sheath, a pink sheath, and she wore a fur stole. I had a, I had a shawl. But the interesting thing about all of that was a couple of things. My father would not let a chauffeur drive us. He insisted on driving us down the mall, through the gates and into Buckingham Palace. Everybody else had CD plates on their car. We had CD plates on it, but everybody else had big black cars driven by chauffeurs, but not us. No, no. We went in the Ford and um, a little man came and took it away and parked it for us. And then we went up to the door and were announced. As, and as we stepped into Buckingham Palace, my sh shoe broke. <laughs> oh. I, had, I had some black slingbacks and the, the back broke. And I thought, oh my Lord, what I got? They were low, high heels. They weren't that high because I didn't want to tower over my mother. She was just a little bit shorter than me. So these were quite low, high heels. And I didn't know what to do. And so I said to one of the footmen that I realised wasn't a statue. <laughs> I said to him, is there a bathroom? Can I find a bathroom? I didn't know what I was going to find in the bathroom, but I just said to my father, I, I thought I might abandon my shoes altogether, actually, but I thought I'd go to the bathroom and just see, have a think. So my parents stood and waited, and I moved over to the right and was shown this bathroom, which was magnificent. There were um, dressing tables everywhere with makeup, and lo and behold, there were needles, cottons, scissors, so I sat down and threaded up a needle <laughs> and sewed up my shoe <laughs> very firmly. 
and uh, put it on and went back out and joined my parents, which was very fortuitous. So there was everything, safety pins, hair clips, you name it, it was all in there. Very okay. thoughtful, very thoughtful, I thought, yes. And then that was that was the beginning of the ball, and it, it was a, a very memorable evening. Mm. It was, yes, I danced in the ballroom. And I always enjoyed that story yes. when I was a little girl. <laughs> so you spent lots of time in England, and then you married Dad and moved back to... New Zealand eventually. Yes, I was going to make my wedding dress. I've never, I didn't know. Oh. I told my father that um, he said, well, you know, what about your dress? What are you going to wear? And I said, well, I'm, I, I'll get some fabric and I'll make it. And he said to me, oh, for goodness sake, <laughs> surely you can buy yourself something for your wedding day. And I said, well, I, don't, I don't know that I'll find anything that's, I'm not going to be a bride. I didn't want to be a bride. And he said, well, what are you going to be then? And I said, well, I just wanted, I want to wear a dress. And he said, well, and he gave me £100 and he said, go and buy yourself something with this. For goodness sake, don't That's, make it. That would have been a lot of money. It was a lot of money. He said, don't make it. For goodness sake, this is a special day. Buy something. I don't care what it is, just buy it. So I felt obligated to buy a dress. And I went shopping and, and I eventually, I think it wasn't John Lewis, it was that shop on the other side of Oxford Circus, a bit further down, Regent Street. I found a Louis Ferraud dress. And it was a, it cost me nearly a hundred pounds. It was really expensive. It was cream gabardine, and it had long sleeves with a zip up the bottom of the sleeves, and it was a scoop neck, and fitted to just below my waist, and then it had like an apron made out of the gabardine, on the front with buttons, and it was a mini. <laughs> and this was nineteen sixty. Ah, uh, sixty-eight. Eight. Yes. So. Um, I just knew I found my dress. That was it, and it was it was nearly a hundred pounds. It was a lot of money. I don't know what else Dad expected me to get for that, but that's what I got. And um, then I went and found some cream shoes, the same colour, and they had chunky heels. But Sam and I are almost the same height. He's only an inch or so taller than me, and I didn't want to tower above him on the wedding day. So I took them to a cobbler and got him to cut the heels off. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So he cut a good inch or more off the heels, which didn't affect the shoe at all. Mm. I that. No, that. No, well, that's what I did. And um, and I had enough money left over to um, get a couple of yards of yellow floral Liberty lawn. And with that, I made a dress for my sister. It had to be yellow because my mother did not want to waste the yellow coat that she had. <laughs> Which I, which I hated. This horrible yellow coat she wore, this hideous great yellow buttle in the front. Gosh, it was awful. But it was a June wedding and it might have been cold. In fact, it was quite cold. So my mother said she might need a coat and this this will look good. And if you buy something that goes with this coat. Oh, Lord. So I was stuck, really. I had to get yellow. Um, so I got this yellow and made her a sheath to wear underneath the coat. And it looked good on her. Mm. It did look good. She's tall and skinny and it did look good. Mm. And she had some yellow shoes too to match the coat so I didn't have to buy shoes for her. So that was that was mm. it. Mm. That was your wedding, 1968 yes. in England. Yes, and Dad went out into the garden on the morning of my wedding. I hadn't thought about flowers. I hadn't sort of thought I'd carry flowers. And he went out into the garden on the morning of my wedding and picked a perfect piece rose. He took all the prickles off and he brought it in to me and he said to me, I think you better carry this, you might need it. <laughs> so I did. So that was the, that was the, the rose I carried. Nice. Yeah, peace. 
I should have one in the garden, I suppose. Hmm. So, so tell me what happened when you came back to New Zealand and I was a baby, so I was born on the way. Well, we went to a, we lived in Australia for three years first, mm. and I bought a lot of fabric in Australia. I got to Australia and there was so much more fabric around than there had been in Britain. So I suspect that Australians were still sewing at that period, in that period too. This was 70. We got to Australia in, oh, 69, 60, end of 68, 69. I just loved the fact that there was all this wool, uh, all this fabric in Australia. I don't remember knitting too much until I found I was pregnant with you. And then I found the wool shops. And they had wool shops everywhere too. And I did quite a bit of knitting for you as a little one. I knitted leggings and jerseys and all sorts of things for you. And sewed you stuff as well. So when we came back to New Zealand three years later, after you were born in 72, um, I had a suitcase full of fabric that I bought, which I still have some of it. <laughs> You've inherited some now. Um, I just can't leave fabric shops empty-handed. I just can't. It's terrible. It's a sickness, I think. Sickness. <laughs> anyway, I'm nearly as bad with wool shops. Um, it's like Sam's just as bad with hardware shops, so I don't feel so bad. Uh, but anyway, I arrived back with all this fabric, which was very fortunate because we lived with Sam's mother for a little while and then we bought a house and it took every it was the beginning of that boom the prices just went nuts so we had to take out a couple of mortgages which left us with no money literally no money so I think we ended up with about four or five dollars a week to feed ourselves which was enough but we couldn't do anything else we had no money to um, we could only run the car one day a week and we couldn't buy furniture for the house so Family pitched in and gave us deck chairs and mum and dad sent up the piano. That was a help. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and uh, that, to be fair, they did send us a mattress as well and later on a kitchen table and some chairs. But the first thing that arrived was the piano. But you made some of my clothes, I remember you saying. Oh, I did. We had no money at all and I didn't have much for you. Um, my sister-in-laws were really generous. Cheryl and Yvonne were fabulous, but... Um, there wasn't quite enough and I just I didn't have any money to buy your clothes I had a bit of wool that I could knit but I hadn't even bought fabric to make your clothes I made a few things and I had a little bit there but not much so um, my biggest triumph was to discover around the corner there was a lady that was having a front lawn sale selling all sorts of old stuff and for a cent I bought um, a yellow broidrown glass dress and some old shirts and with that I came home and unpicked the dress washed it and made you a, a dress I was so proud of that that I'd done that and it looked really pretty on you too and by that time Jonty had been born and I made him some shirts out of the shirt I think I made you a dress out of the shirt too um, some red gingham or something it was a, definitely a mm -hmm. I made several things out of what I bought off her front lawn anyway mm -hmm. But Cheryl was pretty good. She used to give me bags of Rachel's old clothes and that kept you dressed and Yvonne did the same thing. Um, in fact, we all did. We all gave each other clothes in those days. Bags would arrive on the front doorstep. My cousin Valerie used often dressed in her kids' clothes. Mm. Valerie, then, Valerie would have made quite oh, a Oh, Valerie made everything. She was a very good sewer. Yeah, mm. she did. She sewed the same as... Yes. But did. even after things weren't so tight, I remember you made, still made lots of things for mm. me so that I can remember waiting to go to a birthday party. I must have been about nine. Mm. And one of my favourite dresses 
you were still sewing the ribbons onto the flounces. That's right. And we were late for the party. No, no, it was your party. Oh, it was my party. And there were people at the front door, and I was still sewing on. It was that was and so pretty, beads, wasn't it? Had beads. Had a ties over the shoulder with beads on them. Mm. And then it had a flounce at the top over the sort of chest area, and then a flounce off the bottom. And it was there were like several a, flounces. It was um, it was sort of a camel-coloured muslin. Yeah, it was muslin. It was a mm. sort of um, not even camel. It was it was caramel. Yeah, caramel's better colour. Mm. Caramel muslin because the ribbon was caramel too that mm. I was sewing around each flounce. That's two ribbons, <coughs> a darker and a lighter colour. Oh, that's right. There were two. Mm, I really yeah. enjoyed that, but I remember. You're still right. sewing. So you and you knitted all our things. Yes, so, I did. I knitted so a lot. What mm. made you keep going? It, it wasn't then just money, was it? Well, I don't probably we never not. had a lot, but No, probably not. I don't I I never liked acrylic fabric ever. And I hated putting you on acrylic fabric. And a lot of what we could buy then, although clothes were available, were coming in this revolting acrylic. It just, I just didn't like it. I'd prefer to go to a fabric shop and buy the fabric. When you asked me that question, I was thinking, why did I keep sewing? It was because I didn't like what you could buy. Um, I just didn't. The stuff I could afford was I didn't, was horrible. And there wasn't any really good stuff. Uh, nothing aesthetically really. Mm. No. And then I had, the patterns were still rather beautiful. We used to get buttrick patterns and... There were some be- beautiful fabrics that you could buy. So you could choose what you made. You could choose what you put your children in. And then Gwyn moved down the back. And boy, oh boy, she is just a super sewer. And the clothes she dressed her girls in were just... I, I loved everything she put on her girls. And you inherited some. And she inspired me to to choose certain fabrics. I looked at what she put together and thought, oh yes, you could. You could put a stripe and a floral together and I hadn't thought about mixing and matching like that. So I pinched a few ideas from Gwyn and then Trish too. Although Trish used to buy clothes for Rebecca. She made those lovely corduroy pinafores Mm. where they turn the corduroy in around the wrong way for the yoke. and Mm. Yes, they... People were doing interesting things. And Carol. Mm, Carol. Oh, Carol's sewing was quite different. I mean, she was making tutus, for goodness sake, and costumes for ballet. I'm like, oh, never, I could, don't think I could ever do that. And she's still doing it. Mm, but she, all her beautiful smocking. Oh, wow, yes. So you were surrounded by women that were making a lot of things themselves. And mm. that didn't seem unusual to me growing no, up. No, no. But I, maybe I, that was the bubble we lived in. I think we did live in a wee bit of a bubble. I think we did. Because we grew our veggies and we... Yes, we did. Survived yeah. with one car. and Yeah, yeah, we did. And I was home. I wasn't working. So it was obviously a lifestyle choice for Yes, it was. As... Yes, it was. I wanted to be yeah. home and bring you up. I wanted you to have the same childhood that I'd had. I'd had a happy... I remembered my childhood as a happy, privileged childhood. And I wanted that for you. Uh, and Sam's childhood had been so different with a mother who brought up the children on her own. And we agreed when we were first married that I would stay home with the children. That was something that he wanted me to do. He said he didn't want them to come home to an empty house. So that was a conscious choice to stay. And I still like to sew. And I think I'm addicted to fabric and addicted to wool. And and linen and... Essential, aren't they? It gives me a lot of pleasure. I like the feel of them and the smell of them and the look of them. Yes. And I'm always disappointed if something looks beautiful and I find it's not real. It's... Oh, I don't want it anymore. I don't like it anymore. Mm. I just... So I'm a bit of a purist, I think. 
And I yeah. love the possibility of things too. Yes. The promise of yes. what they can become, I think. That's well, that's what happens when you walk into a fabric shop or a wool shop. You don't go in with a pat- pattern in your hand, do you? You go in and you look at the fabric and you think, oh, that would make a wonderful something or other. Or um, that would just suit somebody or other. Yes. We were talking about it the other day, about making things. You couldn't pay someone for what they make. Carol and I were talking about her smocking because she smocked dresses for all of my grandchildren. And she's now smocking one for Seren. She bought the fabric and we both immediately thought Seren and she's doing this beautiful bit of smocking. And she said, people ask her if she'll make make things for them and they'll pay. And she won't because she said they couldn't pay me what I, what it's worth. They couldn't pay me for the hours. It, she said it takes 12 and a half minutes for her just to sew one line of gathering thread across the front of this dress she's doing for sitting. She's yes, a six-year-old. She's six. And so that's 12 and a half minutes to sew one across, just the gathering line. And I think she said there are 20-odd gathering lines. And that's before she even starts. Yes, and she said people, when she was making ballet costumes, people would say to her, look, I'll pay you if you'll make me one. And she'd say no. And she said, it sounds dreadful, but I used to do it for the people that I thought would appreciate it. She said, because nobody could pay me what it was worth. And so the appreciation, that was worth so much more than money. That's true. That's absolutely true. I just like, I like the, the whole thing about giving it and then having it enjoyed and worn. Hmm. Is it a scarf or is it half of a sweater? From what I've heard, it could be a third of a poncho. standing and you can do it sitting is it a hat or is it the start of a blanket maybe a ball or even a shawl for a baby there's no excuse now not to be knitting because you can do it standing and you can do it sitting take out your needles yeah we're casting Once I got a fish love you, you can do it, Mary. You can do it, John. Is it a gnome or some other homely creation? Wait and see, it might even be for a teapot. There's no excuse now not to be knitting, cause you can do it standing, and you can do it sitting. Take out your needle, yeah, yeah, we're casting on. One, two, three, four, five, once I got a fish alive.